0: This episode is brought to you by the Rockefeller Foundation. The Rockefeller Foundation is a pioneering philanthropy built on collaborative partnerships at the frontiers of science, technology, and innovation in order to enable individuals, families, and communities to flourish. The foundation works to promote the well being of humanity and make opportunity universal. Its focus is on scaling renewable energy for all stimulating economic mobility and ensuring equitable access to healthy and nutritious food through its good food strategy the rockefeller foundation seeks to improve the diets of 500 million people through an equitable and regenerative food system by 2030. to achieve this the foundation is working with people and organizations across the globe to bolster science and data support policy change and leverage existing funding in order to increase the availability and accessibility of food that's good for people and planet to learn more about the rockefeller foundation's work follow them on twitter or visit rockefellerfoundation.org. we the
1: chefs
2: we the chefs
0: are working together to create a better
2: food future. future
0: George, Andy, Tom, from Nigeria, Switzerland, Los Angeles, London, India,
2: New Zealand,
0: ingredients are medicine,
2: ingredients are superpowers, food is joy,
0: food is love, food is is
2: life. A very warm welcome back to the Chef's Manifesto podcast mini season on climate friendly, healthy food choices in collaboration with the Rockefeller Foundation. In our second episode, I have the pleasure of welcoming Food System Vision Prize winners and a food systems expert. The Food System Vision Prize was launched by the Rockefeller Foundation in partnership with Second Muse and OpenIDEO as an invitation for organizers, institutions, companies, universities and governments across the globe to develop actionable solutions for the food systems of tomorrow. The top visionaries and winners of the prize were selected from a pool of more than 1,300 applicants, all seeking to develop a vision of regenerative and nourishing food systems that they aspire to create by the year 2050. So let's get started. My first guest is Jian Yi. An internationally acclaimed filmmaker and founding president of the Beijing-based Good Food Fund, whose Mama's Kitchen project is the second top visionary of the 2050 Food Systems Vision Prize we're hearing from today. Jian Yi served on the core leadership team of Action Track 2 of last year's UN Food Systems Summit and is a fellow at several world-renowned universities. His films have won many international awards and have been shown around the globe, including at New York's MoMA. Under his leadership, the Good Food Fund has become a leading initiative in China to promote a plant-forward dietary shift and has co-founded the Food Forward Forum with Yale Hospitality, along with the Culinary Institute of America, University of Massachusetts, Harvard, University of Connecticut, and Google. Hi, Jandley, and welcome to the Chef's Manifesto podcast. You're the founding president of the Good Food Fund, where Mama's Kitchen Project was selected as a top visionary for the Rockefeller Foundation's 2050 Food Systems Vision Prize. Could you tell us what this project was about and how it supports the transformation of our food systems?
3: Hi, Chef Anahita. Thank you for inviting me. At the Good Food Fund, we work to transform, uh, the food systems. But when you talk about the food systems, it's a huge, enormous concept, right? It's probably the largest system anywhere in the world. Uh, there's, there's so many different players in the food systems. They are policy makers, they are producers, food services, communities, families. You know, basically everyone is uh, part of the system. So there comes the question, where do we even start? Uh, how do we even start to address the questions? Um, so as we all know, when we talk about food systems, we want to take a systemic approach uh, to the transformation. But at the same time, we don't want to be overwhelmed uh, by the sheer size of the uh, numbers of the problems and the sheer size of of this whole entire system. We thought ourselves probably the best place to start to address these issues is the kitchen. You know the kitchen can, in our mind, serve as a hub for change. Um, the kitchen is where nature and culture, if you think about it, you know how many things from nature that you see, in your own households and how much of it is actually in your kitchen. So the kitchen is where nature and culture meet and where traditions, you know, your own cultural traditions and family conditions meet the future where you know, what as we say what you eat shapes your future. So the kitchen can serve as a hub for change. But then there also comes the question how many of us You know, even use the kitchen at all. Do you let others, uh, for example, food processors and manufacturers dictate what you, what you eat? Uh, Do you have ownership of the food making processes? For instance, I now live in Boston in the U.S. Coming from China, I feel a lot of the food in the U.S. have excessive amount of sugar in them. I was so shocked to see them, you know, coming to live in the U.S. Uh, with my seven-year-old. Should I allow my seven-year-old son to be, quote-unquote, poisoned by the excessive amount of sugar in the food that we buy from outside? Of course not. But then how can we take back that ownership of the food processing processes? So that's why we came up with the Mamba's Kitchen concept. You know, we have strong faith in Kitchen being the hub for change, uh, a place where we support generative food production and exercise ownership uh, over our own well-being and our own cultural traditions. It's where everything in the food systems comes together. And in the term Mama's Kitchen, the word Mama refers to um, Mother Earth, but also is not You know, referring to any specific gender, you know, we don't want to confine uh, women's role as the only person who should serve food in the family. So it can be anyone who serves food in the family, be it the mother or the father or grandmother or grandfather.
2: That's beautiful. I mean, honestly, I think kitchens are the heart of our homes. And there's so much that happens in our kitchen, especially in my Indian kitchen. There's a lot happening. But I want to know, you know, as this is the Chef's Manifesto podcast, and I'm, of course, particularly interested in hearing how this connects to the work of our chefs in the mini documentary for the Food System Vision Prize, we hear about the restaurant in Dali, China, called Xiao Lo, I hope I pronounced that right, that has started a movement towards a more nourishing and sustainable Chinese food system. Can you tell us how this restaurant works and what role chefs are playing in pursuing this movement?
3: Yes, of course. I knew you are going to ask this question because we are a long-time friend of the Chef's Manifesto Network. People always say food is medicine. Yeah, food is medicine, but... Food is not medicine. Do you ever know anyone who enjoys taking medicine? Uh, I haven't. One reason, of course, is medicine tastes terrible. If food tastes like medicine, if food is medicine, nobody's going to like it, right? So we have to realize that food is and is not medicine. It has to be tasty on top of everything else. So that's where, you know, the, the magic of chefs and cooks come into play. You know, we all have in our childhood, we have seen how our mom magically you know, cooked something raw into something tasty and brought it to the table. So naturally, when we talk about mama's kitchen, we have to celebrate the chef's or the cook's role in it. Therefore... For Mom's Kitchen, we have been constantly talking to chefs and those who cook at home and invite them into the movement. When we do this, we realize there are many challenges. For example, like in many other societies in China, chefs traditionally do not have a high social status. They tend to hide behind in the kitchen. Nobody really knows or cares who they are. Their importance is really not fully recognized and appreciated. And there's a gender issue too. Chefs are predominantly male. So we've heard their wives sometimes complain that the woman cooks at home and serves the family while the man goes out and cooks for some strangers. So there are all these issues with where chefs and cooks are standing in our society today. And so we talk to many chefs in China and those who cook at home and they love the idea of mama's kitchen because they think that if we can incorporate health and sustainability and equity and animal welfare into the kitchen work we will eventually elevate the role of the chef or the cook in that scenario the chef or the cook will continue To be the food designer, you know, we continue to provide tasty food. But also, they will be the health coach and the trainer for sustainable lifestyle, so to speak. He or she will have so much more to offer to their customers or their family members. And they can connect to their customers or family members in so many more ways as they serve than with good food. So that's why we are so grateful to have met Chef Li, uh, the owner of Xiao Lou restaurants in Dali, which you just mentioned. Before COVID, uh, we hosted a good food festival every year for chefs. And Chef Li was the champion of our 2020 good food festival, actually held only a couple of weeks before the outbreak of the pandemic in Wuhan in January 2020. Actually, Paul Newham was actually with us as a judge for this uh, festival in Beijing in the first week of year 2020. So Chef Li actually met him and and signed the uh, chef's manifesto as well. Well, talking about pre-COVID, it's like uh, almost talking about previous life now. Uh, So much has changed. So anyway, so Chef Li After participating in our Good Food Festival, he loved it. How many more levels uh, the chefs can be part of a better society and a better future. So he actually immediately adopted our Good Food Pledge. A Good Food Pledge is an eight-principle guideline that we prepared for chefs and families and communities and food services to Really revolutionized how the food is served in their families or organizations. Principles include be plant forward, uh, respect animal welfare, reduce waste, support local agriculture, healthy cooking, things like that. So, you know, I can always share in the future all the details about the Good Food Pledge. Uh, so Chef Lee adopted the Good Food Pledge and he opened this new restaurant, which we call the first ever Good Food restaurant in China, the Xiaolou restaurant, uh, basically built on the eight principle of the Good Food Pledge. So as you can see, Chef Li really represents this future generation of Chinese chefs. He's not just someone who prepares beautiful food, you know, he does still but he's someone who, who's also an activist. He's a connector, you know, he connects with farmers, he connects with customers, and, and he has vision. And he is not only have vision, but he also has conviction and passion to carry it through. So that's something that's very precious and very representative for what we are looking for for future Chinese chefs.
2: You have a breadth of experience, especially in the area of shifting to a plant forward diet. How does this tie into the climate-friendly, healthy eating, and what has your experience been influencing and encouraging food choices?
3: Sure. When we talk about plant-forward diets, we're talking about celebrating the place of plant-based food in our dinner table, in our diet. You can find so much scientific evidence these days to support this statement, for plant-based food to be the essential, the core part of our diet is supported by so many researchers around the world on climate change, on biodiversity conservation, on public health, on animal welfare, you you name it, and including the uh, 2019 Eat Lancer report. But we also, we have this scientific support, but then we also have to look at, because nobody really, you know, cooks or eat, uh, on a scientific paper, right? So when this scientific evidence about sustainability and public health that we need to safeguard came out, we have to think about how this can be translated into a, into practices. And we have to look into culture. You know, how can, We find that energy in our own culinary culture that can support uh, this future trend. And that's why we came up with uh, working with chefs from very diverse cultural backgrounds and also from very diverse regional backgrounds as well as uh, different um, age groups. We think diversity is very important because when you talk about plant forward, sometimes people think we are restricting their choices. But actually, we're not. There are hundreds of edible plants in this world. We only eat less than than 100 of them.
2: Thank you for all your insights. And, you know, as we're wrapping up, I want to follow up on your answer, which you just gave us. And, you know, just tell us how have your efforts been met with local food customs and traditions
3: as you know we know china is an enormous country uh, with a huge population, uh, one of the largest in the world, well, now second to India. We have many local uh, regional traditions in our dietary choices, and we want to celebrate. And that's why we have Mama's Kitchen. You know, we families have their own traditions. Well, not only regional traditions, but also family traditions. This is how very important that we bring together all these different innovators in the family, in the community, in the commercial kitchens, how we all can be part of this bigger movement and how we can make our kitchens the hub for innovation and the hub to celebrate our our beautiful traditions. Uh, that our ancestors have given us. So all these things can come together uh, in the beautiful space of the kitchen. And also we want Mom's Kitchen to be a very decentralized effort to celebrate that.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you for your insights and thank you for such a lovely conversation. I just want to ask you one last advice if you have for the chefs listening to the podcast today. Do you have any one or two sentences that you'd like to say or any advice?
3: I would invite all of you to China and celebrate beautiful biodiversity and, and beautiful plant-based food with Chinese chefs. And I think this will be a very important way for all of us to make progresses and to build a better future together.
2: Last, but definitely not the least, I would like to invite Dr. Namukolo Kovic onto the podcast. A registered nutritionist, Dr. Kovic is a senior research coordinator at the International Food Policy Research Institute, IFPRI, for the CGIAR Collaborative Research Program on Agriculture for Nutrition and Health. She is based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, where her work includes contributing to African Union and Ethiopian government efforts to address food security and nutrition. With a dual background in both agriculture and nutrition, her expertise spans the area of policy, dynamics of agriculture and food systems with a special focus on Africa. Namakolo is inspired by Africa's untapped potential for a better future and loves traditional African storytelling and the lessons they teach. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Namkolo Kovic. It's an honor to have you here. Just want to ask you... You work as the Director General's Representative to Ethiopia for the International Food Policy Research Institute, ILRI. In this and many parallel and previous capacities, you advocate for positive food systems transformation for Africa. And that we should use lessons from elsewhere to set a different transformation path for Africa one with better sustainability. What exactly does such a path look like and how does climate-friendly, healthy food choices play into this conversation?
1: Well, there's work that was published in The Lancet in 2015 and it showed that the Africa region had less unhealthy consumption patterns overall. This is something we can take advantage of on the continent Many of us still love our green leafy vegetables. On average, we have lower ultra-processed food consumption, yet we are on a dietary transition towards more refined foods, uh, more sugar, more fat. So the question that I have constantly asked is, does it really have to be that way? Why can we not keep the good of our consumption patterns while we do more to add more nutrient dense foods to our consumption so that we can have better nutrition and health. We have high rates of hunger and food insecurity. Uh, That's a given, but having high prevalence of overweight and obesity as we see in the global North is hardly anything to move towards either. But that's where our current dietary transition is taking us. I am advocating for Africa to take a different path through different dietary choices, leveraging the diverse food biodiversity that we've got on the continent. Unfortunately, we already have some African countries who have swung the pendulum too far. Can we stop at least and before we go too far This is the question that I ask. We should work towards doing just that, I think, for the African continent. So I'm hoping that the efforts on the UN Food Systems Summit will try and take us in that direction.
2: That sounds interesting and challenging. Could you provide a little background on some of the challenges and opportunities countries face around agriculture in Africa in particular?
1: One of the major problems that we have got is that our food basket is not diverse enough. In spite of having a diverse biodiversity of food, a lot of our government policies have concentrated on producing starchy staples. Our development has not equitably included moving towards more diverse uh, food basket. So that's one problem. The second problem that we have is that the continent is already facing significant challenges on climate change. So very frequent droughts, uh, frequent floods. So really when people talk about climate change, for us, it is already here and we are experiencing it. I know that uh, yields have actually been going down in spite having higher levels of fertilizers being used on the continent. So unless we change our practices to more sustainable practices, we are facing multiple challenges on this front.
2: So the ILRI is a part of Global Research Partnership called the CGIAR. Could you tell us a little bit more about what this partnership does in the area of climate-friendly, healthy food choices?
1: Well, the CGIR is composed of non-for-profit international research centers. There used to be 15 of them. I think we now have 12. With the transition to one CGI, there's three of them that have not uh, continued on that path. Now, the research outputs that the CGIR produce are global public goods whether it's crop varieties or improved animal breeds and other technologies and products, they are all public goods. So there's no cost to adoption. We have a research and innovation strategy that seeks to contribute to positive momentum on attainment of SDGs, specifically taking quite an in-depth food systems approach. So we have multiple impact areas like nutrition, health, and food security, uh, poverty reduction and livelihoods, and even jobs, um, gender equality, youth, and social inclusion. We also have an impact area on climate adaptation and mitigation and environmental health. So really there is quite a bit the different centers can bring towards uh, making food systems uh, more sustainable. Within this CGIR, Ilory, which is the International Livestock Research Institute that I work for, has a mission of improving food and nutritional security and reducing poverty in developing countries through research for efficient, safe, and sustainable use of livestock. So essentially, It's working towards ensuring better lives through livestock by contributing to sustainable livestock solutions, addressing not only nutrition and livelihoods, but also enhancing ecosystem services. So this to me is important, especially given the climate challenges that we face and all the negative impacts that we hear about with respect to livestock and agriculture. More generally,
2: as part of your engagement with the International Food Policy Research Institute, you coordinated the Agriculture for Nutrition and Health, the A4NH initiative in Ethiopia. How do agriculture, nutrition, and health connect, and why should we be talking about these links when thinking about food choices? Maybe you also want to mention the amazing poem here, which I know you wrote last year for the UN Food Summit. The core value of
1: agriculture is really to produce food. Um, I know we are now producing fuels and what have you, but the core value of agriculture is really to produce food. The CGIR program on agriculture for nutrition and health, which we shortened to call A4NH that you mentioned, had the objective of ensuring that developments in the agriculture sector would lead to better diets, nutrition, and health outcomes. But we also know that for this to happen, the agriculture sector has to be deliberate about producing a diverse food basket to have positive impacts on diets and nutrition. Earlier, I mentioned that for far too long, many developing countries had focused on producing starchy staples and have not paid enough attention to the diversity of the food basket. While we need the calories from the starchy foods, we also need micronutrients, proteins, and others that are necessary for better health and nutrition. And so A4NH actually focused on ensuring that agriculture would deliver on diets um, and nutrition. And to do this, we looked at different perspectives. One was looking at research that informs food systems for healthier diets. The other was looking at uh, food safety. We also have some efforts that looked at enriching uh, the starchy staples I was talking about with micronutrients like vitamin A like zinc and iron, those key micronutrients that are really mega problems. And then, of course, we had one on animal health that focused and really took a one health approach and that took on really new significance given the COVID pandemic that befell us. And then finally, we had one on looking at policies. And so our work, tries to link evidence to to policy instruments in the country. Um, and, and it was not just Ethiopia, we were also linking into African Union uh, policy instruments. Yeah, so it's really just ensuring that agriculture does deliver what it is supposed to do, which is nutrition and health for people.
2: I think we're looking forward to listening to your poem and uh, we would love to hear that from you. Oh, yeah, the poem. Poem bit was the
1: Agriculture for Nutrition and Health was a collaborative research project. So it was coming to an end in 2021 with the transition to 1CGIR. But I felt it was a good example for the 1CGIR to take forward and so that poem was actually written to encourage lessons to be learned from that particular program.
2: So one area you're focusing on is the evidence-informed decision-making along with policy to program continuum. Why is data and research-based decision-making and data and research in food systems generally so crucial? Well, governments and people make decisions related to food
1: systems based on different reasons. It is important that the paramount reason actually be evidence. For farmers, for example, production practices decisions could simply be based on what they consider to be meaningful for their livelihoods to provide for themselves and for their families. Evidence can show farmers where there might be short-term gains that would lead to degrading the land upon which they depend to sustain the very livelihoods they so care about. This is how we are messing up with the environment anyway. So for both governments and farmers, evidence would be useful to influence the decisions that usher in more sustainable production practices. Evidence that shows things are not going well is not enough though. Um, We also need evidence that demonstrates viable alternatives. So knowing something is not good is not enough to lead to positive changes as we know, otherwise people would never smoke, I guess. Um, But similarly, when it comes to food consumption choices, it might simply be the taste, for example, uh, such as sweet, uh, salt, and more sweet. Evidence is needed, not only to show certain foods might not be good for health, but also to demonstrate how people could still enjoy their food without lacing it in sugar and salt. And I'm sure as a chef, that's an area that you have expertise in. I think also important is to show consumers how their food choices can have positive or negative contributions to the challenges we have, such as on climate and environment, as well as on their health. And not just for people, but also the fact that our planet really needs us to make different choices. It's very clear we are in trouble, as we've seen from the recent IPCC report that indicates we are actually much worse off than we thought we were in terms of not meeting that Paris Agreement points that that people had agreed on.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I agree with you on so many of those points, especially about the role that chefs have to play, because we are right in the middle of the farmer and the consumer, and we can actually um, get people to make really informed, good uh, choices. So I have one more question for you. Given we're speaking on the Chefs Manifesto podcast, I'll be curious to hear how Africa and African chefs are advancing their solutions, including through working with farmers that others could consider adopting too.
1: I think one of the things that I have found encouraging is The African Union has an Africa Day of Food and Nutrition Security that is commemorated in October. And there have been efforts to engage uh, chefs on the African continent to have them embrace our traditional and indigenous foods so that they can incorporate more and more of those into uh, menus and the like. And the idea is to promote use of those foods, but perhaps bring on board even uh, the agriculture sector so that we can actually produce them because a lot of the traditional foods we still collect from the wild. And so for sustainability in the long term, if the chefs popularize the food, we will need to produce more of it. And so trying to engage with the agriculture sector and engaging them with the chefs is one way of trying to address that issue of us uh, taking advantage of our food biodiversity that I spoke about earlier.
2: Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I think all of us in our different countries and cities and towns need to start working um, with our farmers, very closely with our farmers and bringing forward these beautiful, biodiverse, local grains and ingredients. Thank you so much, Dr. Kovic. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Chef's Manifesto podcast today. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and crucial insights with me and our listeners from around the world. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to have had the opportunity to speak to you as well. As we're coming to an end of this second episode around climate-friendly, healthy food choices... I'd like you all to reflect on what we've heard from our amazing guests, from chefs to scientists, food system experts and visionaries on how we can all take practical actions towards transformed food systems that are resilient, equitable and provide good, climate-friendly and healthy food for all. The challenges we face often seem ominous and overwhelming with a changing climate food security on the rise, and COVID-19 pandemic, and the recent war on Ukraine only further highlighting the many inequalities and vulnerabilities of our food systems. But there are also opportunities to address these issues if we work and act together in our communities and as chefs in our kitchens, restaurants, and across our platforms. Thanks again to the amazing guests for chatting with me and to the Chefs Manifesto team behind the scenes for the organization and bringing together of the episodes. Lastly, thanks to our sponsor, the Rockefeller Foundation, for partnering with us on the production of this mini season. And that's all for today. I've been your host, Chef Anaita Dhondi, and I hope you've enjoyed the conversations as much as I have. Please subscribe to our channel's Read and comment below. Your feedback is invaluable to us and your participation really helps boost our reach. We want to talk and engage with as many chefs as we can around the world to talk about sustainability and strengthen our global movement of chefs at the forefront of change. Thanks for listening. There are eight thematic areas. Ingredients grown with respect to the earth
0: or its oceans Protection of biodiversity and improved animal welfare
3: Investment in livelihoods Value
0: natural resources and reduce waste Waste is recyclable Waste is unnecessary
2: Waste is criminal
0: the Celebration of local and seasonal food a focus
2: on plant-based ingredients.
0: Education on food safety and
2: healthy diets. Nutritious food that is accessible, accessible
0: and affordable to all. Chefs, politicians,
2: suppliers, farmers,
0: educators. Chefs together can change the world. Get
3: involved. Get involved. Get involved. Get involved. <laughs>